This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Kate Summerscale is an award-winning author and journalist who achieved international recognition with the publication of The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. The book was a groundbreaking re-examination of the infamous Road Hill House case, a grisly Victorian murder which became the blueprint for the classic English country house murder story. Since writing Mr. Witcher, Kate has turned her forensic light onto several other seemingly inexplicable cases, including those of Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace and The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story. Her most recent book might seem like a bit of a departure, but in the book of Phobias and Manias, A History of the World in 99 Obsessions, she offers us a series of fascinating case studies that take us on a tour of our deepest fears and compulsions. Before Kate leads us into the murkier side of human nature, here's a taster from the book, narrated by Stephanie Racine. Phobia particularises anxiety, observes the literary scholar David Trotter, to the point at which it can be felt and known in its particularity, and thus counteracted or got around. A mania, too, can condense a host of fears and desires. These private obsessions are the madnesses of the sane, perhaps the madnesses that keep us sane by crystallising our frights and fancies and allowing us to proceed as if everything else makes sense. To be diagnosed as a phobia, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, 2013, a fear must be excessive, unreasonable and have lasted for six months or more and it must have driven the individual to avoid the feared situation or object in a way that interferes with normal functioning. The DSM-5 distinguishes social phobias, which are overwhelming fears of social situations, from specific phobias, which can be divided into five types. Animal phobias, natural environment phobias, fears of heights, for instance, or of water, blood injection and injury phobias, situational phobias, such as entrapment in closed spaces, and other extreme fears, such as a dread of vomiting, choking, or noise. Those specific phobias can be more responsive to treatment than any other anxious conditions. Most people don't report them, choosing instead to avoid the objects that they fear. It is thought that only one in eight people with such a phobia seeks help. This makes it difficult to measure their prevalence. But a review in The Lancet Psychiatry in 2018, which synthesised 25 surveys carried out between 1984 and 2014, found that 7.2% of us are likely to experience a specific phobia at some point in our lives. Kate Summerscale, welcome to My Life in Books. Hello, thank you for having me. Before we start, we should define our terms. Could you tell us exactly what a phobia is? Yes, a phobia is an irrational hatred or aversion to something. It's a compulsion to avoid something. And to be a diagnosable phobia, um, the fear or aversion has to have lasted for six months or more to be extreme and to interfere with normal functioning. But many more of us have aversions and dislikes that we commonly refer to as phobias. So there's a sort of spectrum of of fear and anxiety that the word encapsulates. And a mania differs in that rather than being something that we shy away from, it's something that we are drawn to. Yes, there's sort of two sides of the same obsessive coin. So put very simply, a phobia is a compulsion to avoid something and a mania is a compulsion to do something. To an extent, we're all driven by our fears or desires, but some people live in thrall to them. 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, without fear and desire, we, we wouldn't have survived as a species. The, these are things designed to sort of protect us and drive us forward. But some people become sort of fixated on, on certain anxieties in a way that uh, messes with their lives. And uh, that is when they are classified as phobic or manic. And that's actually quite a large percentage of, of the world population. Yeah, it's quite, um, it's a difficult thing to quantify because not everyone reports their phobias or manias and, um, and, and identifies as that. But there has been some sort of international compilations of surveys from all over the world that established that about one woman in 10 has a specific phobia and one man in 20. And, of course, one of the most recognisable is arachnophobia. What can arachnophobia tell us about phobias and and how they interact with us? It's a very common phobia that many of us either experience or witness in, in those around us. And it's just it's a mysterious one, actually, because the sight of a spider in an arachnophobic person triggers both the fear and disgust responses. Um, it bypasses the conscious brain and, and just creates an almost physiological reaction. But spiders in Europe and most of the West are not dangerous to us. They are neither predators to humans at any rate, nor are they toxic on the whole, not in the countries in which arachnophobia is most common. So there's been a lot of um, curiosity and investigation into why we should respond this way to spiders. And one intriguing theory is that during the plague years in the Middle Ages, spiders were commonly believed to be the carriers of disease and so they were feared for th- for that reason. And in the 19th century, it was established that spiders did not carry disease after all. It was, in fact, the fleas on the backs of rats. Uh, but nonetheless, maybe the belief, the folk belief, has become so embedded in our culture in Europe and in countries which are populated by people of European descent that this sort of cultural memory is sort of alive in us and, and profoundly embedded even in our brains. Now, arachnophobia is only one of the 99 phobias or manias that you discuss. And you arrange the book alphabetically. But it does show that our phobias and manias are pretty ubiquitous and very enduring. However, they also develop with us. We kind of adapt into phobias and away from them. One of the ones that shows this is ablutophobia, the fear of washing, which in 19th century France had a bit of a flare-up. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so ablutophobia, the fear of washing, is actually quite common in children, but mostly sort of grow out of it. But um, yet in the 19th century, a lot of French people did, did not wash regularly and felt it um, would almost sort of strip them of their, their vigour and health. But in the later 19th century, it was established that dirt and germs could carry disease and the government tried to enforce cleanliness and teach children in schools about cleanliness and about washing and also to make sure the army recruits kept clean. But there was a lot of resistance to this because there was a very strongly embedded sense that washing was unpleasant and unnatural. And um, there's one case I describe in the book of a young soldier who was forced to wash by his comrades on the direction of the authorities and afterwards seemed to have died of shock after being forced under a shower. Uh, So these things can be very, very deeply held beliefs and very historically conditioned. So yes, although there's plenty of evidence that many of our phobias are rooted in our prehistory and sort of evolutionary instincts, they're also very much kind of shaped and guided 
by the culture we live in and the, the social norms, as well as personal experiences. Yeah, and as you've already said, you know, these, these phobias and manias are at the extreme end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum from ablutophobia is mysophobia, the fear of dirt or germs, and, and is something we've experienced quite recently with the pandemic. Yeah, I was intrigued by one article I read that was published during the pandemic by a woman who had various sort of health anxieties and felt compelled to wash her hands and very afraid of germs and and disease. And she said it was strangely liberating to go to the supermarket during the pandemic and to see everyone adopting the kinds of behaviours that she had been taught to think of as pathological and weird, to keep away from each other, to disinfect their hands, to be very aware of proximity to other people and the possibility of infection. And so that was a kind of a surprising uh, observation that was a, this very strong reminder of, of how the border between what is rational and irrational can shift. And yes, a reminder that all these irrational fears, uh, the, the idea of what is irrational, is a culturally um, decided thing which can, which can alter. And of course, as we develop technologically, new phobias and manias appear accordingly. So we've got aerophobia, fear of flying, as a 20th century phenomenon, and then one which seems more and more in the public debate now is nomophobia, which is the fear of being separated from your mobile phone. And you have a, a great section on that, considering how mobile phones have become central to our feelings of self. The word nomophobia was coined in 2008, and it was a sort of jokey coinage, you know, the fear of being without your mobile phone was seen then as sort of still slightly comical. But in fact, of course, now we use our mobile phones to do so many things. They really are intrinsic parts of how we function. And there's some very interesting research into how people actually do experience their mobile phones as almost parts of their body. Um, we've, we've imaginatively incorporated them. So people experience anxiety and unable to focus on tasks when the phone is out of arm's reach. Um, so they really have become a part of our consciousness. And it's an it's an open question whether it really is irrational to fear being separated from one's mobile phone since we use them to communicate, shop, book appointments, check our health. They really have become extensions of ourselves in a sense. I was also struck by what a, a broad variety of phobias there are, everything from clowns to popcorn to beards. Do you think we're becoming more anxious or do you think we are just medicalising our fears and foibles? I think that there can be a comfort in a way into focusing your anxiety on particular objects and situations. It can be a way of offloading anxiety and placing it in a particular object, a spider for example, and by avoiding the object we have a fantasy that we're avoiding those bad feelings altogether. I think we certainly, since the phobia started to be named in the 18th century and predominantly in the 19th century, there has been a sort of mania for um, categorising and classifying human experience and um, the stranger reaches of human emotions and sort of putting them into, into boxes and groups to analyse them. In fact, many of these phobias and manias draw on the same kinds of feelings, the same kinds of anxieties and the object on which they focus can be quite random and um, probably doesn't really provide the clue to what the cause is. 
Yeah, and the manias that you detail broadly split into two types. There's the communal manias like beetle mania, where large groups of people follow a fad. But there are also the more personal, obsessive, compulsive manias like nail-biting or excessive cleanliness, where they're actually people eating into themselves. Yeah, some of the manias, there's trichotillomania, which is obsessive hair plucking, dermatillomania, which is skin picking, and onicotillomania, which is um, that you describe sort of picking at nails in, a, in an extreme way, which are people sort of uh, plucking at or picking at the edges of their bodies. Um, it verges on self-harm, though many people who experience these conditions dislike that description. Instead, they think of it as a sort of self-comforting kind of compulsion that gives them a little bit of pain, a little bit of pleasure, and it's a sort of self-soothing. Uh, so those those compulsions, nowadays, we don't talk about them as manias so much, but as obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, and yes, then there are the communal manias, often uh, recorded among communities of Girls and young women, such as Beetle Mania in the 60s or the Laughing Mania in East Africa at the same time, which seem to be sort of collective explosions of emotion that are perhaps emotions that are not getting expressed elsewhere, that typically occur at times of very rapid social change. What are the main ways of treating phobias and manias and how successful are they? The specific phobias are highly treatable and they're among the most successfully treated of anxiety disorders and they can be treated with for example cognitive behavioural therapy, hypnotherapy, virtual reality therapies, exposure therapies um, but uh, strangely, most people who suffer from a specific phobia, or even a diagnosable one, which means it's quite severe, do not seek help. I think it's only one in eight who actually tries to address their phobia and overcome it in a professional setting. And I suppose the, the reason is, is fairly simple. It's that most people deal with their phobias by simply avoiding the thing that they're terrified by or averse to instead of trying to remove the fear itself. And our phobias and manias have provided a rich seam for authors to mine. And you include examples from the literature of Dickens and Poe and Tolstoy and Gogol, amongst others. Many novelists have, I suppose, have been interested in people with fixations and extremes and emotional states. So, but yeah, Gogol talks about a, a hoarder. The entry in the book is Silogomania, which is the compulsion to hoard, um, who's always picking up things and gathering them. And Gogol says it's as if he's leaving his human emotions strewn about his estate and replacing them with these these objects which he gathers up and takes into his home. Dickens also writes about a hoarder. And there's a case of Ian McEwan writes about somebody who suffers from erotomania or de Clarembeau's syndrome, which is the delusion that one is adored by another person. And uh, the person with this condition feels as if their feelings kind of direct the world. It's a sort of delusion of omnipotence that, the, that they are adored. And uh, it can be a thing that drives stalkers, for example, a delusion that makes one think one is desperately wanted when the reverse is true. <laughs> now, as we can hear, most phobias or manias have a rather complex names drawn from the Latin or Greek for the object that is either feared or desired. But not all of them. Some have just been made up for fun, and I think one of my favourite was the fear of long words. And if it's OK with you, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it. <laughs> 
I've definitely got the fear of pronouncing the word, <laughs> the fear of long words. I'll try it. Hippopoto monstro sesquipedaliophobia. And it's, it's a very long word. I think it's one letter longer than supercalifragilistic expialidocious. <laughs> and it was coined, I think, in the 1970s, as far as we can tell. And it's, it's sort of coined in fun. They're doubtless, you know, people are scared of, of long words, but the word itself, it sort of has the air of being a, a scientific, uh, medical, authoritative word because it's uh, created by translating various things into the Greek and then sticking phobia on the end. But in fact, the hippopoto bit of it is just a sort of nonsense that's been thrown in. So it's a, it's a playful word. It's a joke. But uh, don't, don't rule out that there may be people who have a tormenting terror of long words. Anything is possible in the world of phobias and manias. It has to be said, whilst I was reading about the fear of lots of little holes in things, tripophobia, I was thinking, oh, gosh, yeah, no, I, I kind of get that. And certainly claustrophobia as well. I was thinking, yeah, OK, yes, I can see I'm on the spectrum for that. What's your phobia or mania? <laughs> um, well, I've, I started the book thinking I wasn't particularly phobic or manic, um, although I do have a an irrational anxiety about flying in planes. I also have an irrational anxiety about speaking in public, about addressing a room full of people and experience the sort of physiological symptoms, you know, the dry mouth and feeling trembly or faint and your mind going blank. Oh, I also suffered, I realised when I wrote the book that my teenage fear of blushing could be classified as a, as a phobia. Um, a very interesting phobia because the fear of blushing is what brings on the blush. So your the, the anxiety creates the thing that 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 you're anxious about. Um, but in the course of writing the book, I also did imagine my way into lots lots more of these conditions that, on the face of it, seem sort of um, um, mysterious, uh, bizarre, even comical. And yet, once you sort of dig into it and understand where people are coming from, you can almost um, catch them yourself, like the, the trypophobia one you described, the fear of irregular clusters of holes. I, I get that now. <laughs> and um, even the fear of buttons, which seemed outlandish. I now sort of, I, I understand the person who's scared of buttons is scared of a dangling button or a detached button. And this sense of it, the button can almost be or represent a part of yourself that might come loose, fall off, expose you. I sort of have come to be a, I'm aware of those um, slightly unsettling properties of buttons in a way that, that I wasn't to begin with. Well, yes, as soon as I read that sentence, oh, a dangling button can remind you of a tooth dangling by its final little sinew, I thought, oh, yes, I get that now. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, thanks for giving me a new phobia. <laughs> now, certainly the way some of the case studies are detailed made me realise just how real the threat of a lot of these manias and phobias can be for those who suffer from them. And it can feel like an external force. And that's certainly one explanation that has been offered for The Haunting of Alma Fielding, which was your 2020 book and which we will be discussing after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Kate Summerscale. Kate, your 2020 book was The Haunting of Alma Fielding. And I suppose the question at the heart of that is, was she really possessed of supernatural powers or was she suffering from demonophobia? 
a word that I learnt from your latest book. <laughs> Could you introduce us to her and tell us about her story? Alma Fielding was a housewife who lived in Thornton Heath, South London, in 1938. And one February day, she called the papers and reported that she had a poltergeist in her house. Other members of her family had also witnessed the the violence of this poltergeist, throwing bottles of cream and coins around the place, switching on and off lamps. And the reporters visited, witnessed some of this activity for themselves. And then a psychical researcher called Nandor Fodor got involved. Um, it was a good, but very fashionable to research ghosts and try to prove the existence of the afterlife in Britain between the wars. And he became very excited, thinking that he had a real, real proof of supernatural activity here. And not only that, but Alma Fielding started to produce objects from thin air, even under experimental conditions when she'd been strip searched and was not no longer in her home. So it became a very exciting case to Fodor and and his colleagues, and uh, and they conducted an investigation that lasted several months. Yeah, and these objects were bizarre and various. She produced a terrapin, seemingly from thin air, in the back of a taxi, and pieces of jewellery. There seemed to be no rhyme nor reason to it, which kind of lent it credibility really didn't it yes it was anything from shards of ancient pottery jewels creatures she produced a bird at one point that sort of you know flew up into the air in the seance room at the international institute for psychical research and she professed herself entirely bewildered by these things and no nobody could work out if she was fraudulent how on earth she was doing it so they became more and more gripped by it, um, but also suspicious that she was tricking them. And so there was a strange dynamic where Fodor and his colleagues were both her champions, thinking they'd found this absolute sort of wonder woman who was made of magic, but also kind of her persecutors trying to catch her out and um, work out how she was perpetrating these tricks, if they were tricks. Yeah, and Fodor, as you paint him, is almost haunted by self-doubt. He he really wants to believe because this would justify everything that he stands for. Yet he can't quite believe the evidence of his own eyes, can he? Yeah, he's a, I, I sort of love him as a character because he's like a little boy wanting to believe in magic and on the one hand, quite sort of uh, excitable and gullible. On the other hand, highly rational, sceptical. He's a ghost hunter who's never seen a ghost. <laughs> he longs to see a ghost. So his belief and passion is not informed by his supernatural experiences, but by his longing to have one. The way that he sort of reconciles these things in the 30s is um, to employ the theories of Sigmund Freud and to wonder whether supernatural phenomena are real but created by the subconscious mind and um, so people's unconscious desires and fears are being projected outwards and um, able to move objects across a room for example or even produce them from thin air. So he's sort of intellectually curious and adventurous and imaginative about how he interprets these things, which takes him to more and more outlandish places with his theories. Alma Fielding isn't alone in perhaps suffering from a phobia or a mania and it being at the core of the story that she creates around herself in an earlier book of yours, Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace, we see an example of a Victorian lady who is very unhappily married and whose diary is used in a court case against her. And she offers a rather unusual defence. 
Yeah, she, um, Isabella Robinson's diary, she detailed a passionate affair with a young doctor who was a friend of the family who ran a hydrotherapy spa which treated Charles Darwin, amongst others, in the south of England. And when her husband read this diary while she was lying in a, in a fever in a hotel room in Boulogne, he went mad, you know, proof of her adultery, and he tried to divorce her using the diary as evidence. And she, in the divorce court, um, her, her lawyers said, oh no, the diary was a work of fiction, and she was suffering from a delusion that this doctor was in love with her. And she had written all these diary entries in the grip of this delusion as kind of erotic fantasies. And in fact, no affair had taken place. So it was a very curious case where she had her diary entries read out in court, far more explicit and scandalous than anything that was published in Victorian fiction at the time. And they were reproduced in newspapers around the country. A very humiliating experience, one would imagine. And perhaps even more humiliating, she said these were the, her fantasies um, and, and not, not a reality at all. So her husband was convinced that this really had happened. The young doctor, of course, said that no impropriety had occurred and, and the divorce court had to decide whether, whether the diary was fact or fiction. And there's a fantastic blurring of fact and fiction that's also echoed in the presence of major literary figures such as Charles Dickens who just casually walk through your narrative as well that it it caught everybody's imagination and and made people see that fact and fiction can be blurred around the edges and that's um is something that sort of recurs in in my books i think a curiosity about that and perhaps it's because i i write factual books i write history these are not novels uh, but of course in order to tell any story you use the tools of a fiction writer you know the the ways of using dialogue creating suspense sketching character depicting scenes and you're very selective and you're telling in effect your story, your version of what happened. And so the idea that factual works and fictional works, that there's a clear border between them that strikes me as wrong. You know, you can write a, a factual book, but it's illuminated, it's coloured, it's shaped by your own emotions and experiences. And uh, and so I think I've, I'm quite often drawn to things that explore that boundary and how complex and subtle it can be. Now, no conversation with you would be complete without us talking about the suspicions of Mr. Witcher. Before we go on to how your research into the history of that case actually ended up creating something fictional when the TV series came out. For those who aren't familiar with it, this was a very grisly murder case that happened in England in 1860. Can you give us the facts? There was a, a little boy, a three-year-old boy, who was murdered in his house in Wiltshire. And it quickly became apparent that only somebody who had been in the house that night could have been guilty of the murder. There were quite a few people in the house, the extended family, also some servants. And the local police were unable to find the culprit in the first couple of weeks. So two detectives went down from Scotland Yard, one of them Jack Witcher, to try to solve the case. And he quite quickly came to a conclusion, identified who he thought uh, was the murderer, but was unable to find the evidence to prove it. And uh, so he was vilified in, in the press and um, he subsequently had a nervous breakdown. Uh, but it turned out five years later that his suspicions had, had been correct. So it was a, it's a story about, in a way, the birth of the, the figure of the detective. Jack Witcher was one of the original eight detectives in Scotland Yard. 
um, but also the emergence of a sort of genre of the country house murder mystery and and our sort of fascination with these cases like where there's a discrete group of suspects and they've all got something to hide, but the guilty party has to be found from amongst them and the detective as a kind of hero who is able to, to be the person who can can work it out and restore justice and order. And it's very much an example of how some cases can play so much on our deepest fears that they they can lead to a kind of mania. I suppose the horror of this case was that it lay inside the the sanctity of a nice middle-class English family home and if it could happen there, then nobody was safe in their beds. Yeah, that moment in Victorian England, the, the middle of the century, it was the sort of height of the cult of domesticity and the family and the idea of the sanctity of, of the home was paramount. So the fascination with what secrets might be festering behind those closed doors. It was both to the public, I think, both a horrifying thought that the that the home should be breached by the police, the detectives, who were, after all, working class men going into a middle class home, but also a bit gripped by what what would be found there. Um, So they talked about the detective fever. Armchair detection broke out across the country. And you can see because of the particular case how closely linked that is to a, a furious curiosity about what's going on inside families because families had become more shut away from the world, especially middle class families, than ever. As the title would suggest, this is a book about Jack Witcher as much as it is about the Roadhill House murder. And I knew, I thought, pretty much everything about the murder before reading your book, but I knew nothing about what happened to Jack Witcher afterwards. But you provided all those answers and rather brought him back from the grave. Was that what you set out to do? I started researching the murder itself rather than the detective, and it struck me at one point that he was my way in because he was the sort of presiding consciousness. He was, in a way, a sort of avatar for a researcher or a historian, somebody who wanted to go in and find the evidence and make a story out of it, put it in order and sort of find the truth. Um, And I thought, well, yes, there there are many true crime books that are rehashing old crimes and so on. But the idea that the detective was a character in the story really intrigued me. And I became fascinated by him and how much was at stake for him with this case and how much he symbolised the police force, the working class, the detective in various ways. And so both his personal story, which was quite heartbreaking, but also his symbolic story, you know, what he represented to to the Victorian public and how he has helped shape the figure of detectives ever since seemed to me very, very compelling. And so the book became about him, as you say, as much as it was about the, the murder. There are two audiobook versions of The Suspicions of Mr Witcher, one of which is narrated by Jessica Ball, and then a fantastic abridged version by Harriet Walter. But it didn't just stop there. The Suspicions of Mr Witcher became a major TV drama series. The first episode's based on your book... But the episodes that followed were fictional reimaginings of cases that Witcher took on in his career after the police. How did you feel about your meticulous research of the facts being turned into fiction? It was really fun and it seemed altogether fitting because in my book I'd been quite interested in the way this real-life case had fed into the early stirrings of detective and sensation fiction. So the way in which news events and actual events influenced the writer's imagination was at the heart of it. As you say, the first film they made is a self-contained film based on the book, which has a documentary feel to it. It's an account of the case as I described it. 
But then the television producers invented stories for for the, the, the real life character of Jack Witcher to investigate. Um, and I, I had discovered in the course of my research that after he was vindicated in the Roadhill House case, he got back his, his nerve and operated as a private investigator in London. So it wasn't entirely fantastical to come up with cases for him to investigate in that capacity and, uh, and fun to see what they did with it. Um, so no, that was, a, that was a real pleasure. It's not as if the true story was fictionalised and interfered with in a way that was galling. It was a separate and, and fictional project they entered into with the true character. And judging by your tone when you've been talking about Mr Witcher, something that I should imagine made you smile as well. He He deserved a happy ending. He deserves to be thought of as one of the archetypes of detection. Yeah, that is a sort of a happy ending for him, the sort of re- rehabilitation as a star TV detective. And in in real life, I discovered that he did have that happy ending of, of his reputation being restored. And he also, having been unmarried all his life, in middle age, he married his landlady. And so let's hope he also found some personal happiness and fulfilment there. Kate, a few years ago, you wrote... I'm a journalist playing historian, and then I try and convert what I found into something like a novel. And you were working as a journalist when you came across the subject of your first book, The Queen of Whale Key. Yes, I was working as a journalist at the Daily Telegraph on the obituaries desk, um, where all of us sort of doubled as editors and writers and composed uh, anonymously obituaries of, of people, either in preparation for the files or in response when we heard of the, that somebody had died whose life merited telling. And I wrote the obituary of a woman called Jo Carstairs, who I'd never heard of, um, but whose goddaughter wrote to us and told, told us about her. And I looked up the cuttings, the yellowing cuttings in the Telegraph Library and put together the, the story of her life. It was only about a thousand words, but I was so intrigued by it and I people got in touch with me afterwards to tell me more. She was a, an heiress who dressed as a man, raced motorboats faster than any other woman in the world, and uh, had an obsession with a small doll called Lord Todd Wadley, and who eventually bought an island in the Bahamas and ruled it like a despot. So she was certainly a, an outlandish character who it was difficult to imagine had, um, had had lived. You know, she seemed like something from a fable or a fairy tale, really. Protected by her money, she'd lived in relative secrecy in the last part of her life. And uh, so, yeah, then I, I decided to write a book about her. Yes, another character with an obsession, this time pediomania. Yes, an obsession with her doll, Lord Todd Wadley, who was uh, a foot-high little leather doll made in Germany, and she opened a bank account for him at Coots. She had suits made for him in Savile Row. She took him everywhere with her, to the extent that the people on her island, she had about 500 subjects on Whale Key, um, thought that he was her voodoo man. And he did have a sort of uncanny presence, as many of her girlfriends testified. Well, I found it the most sort of intriguing thing about her, really, her relationship with this doll. Beyond all the other outlandish things, it seemed like something that expressed her vulnerability. He was like an alter ego, like her best friend, her companion. And when she died, he was cremated with her. All your books, including The Queen of Whale Key, have been recorded as audiobooks. And I was wondering whether this is because you're a fan of audiobooks or you've just got a very good publisher. <laughs> well, I am a fan of audiobooks, yes. And more and more people do listen to audiobooks now, don't they? And it's become a way of like carrying books around with us in all sorts of situations, even if we are able to easily read them, it can be a, a more intimate and pleasurable way of experiencing them. When I read passages from my books aloud, as I sometimes do, 
It's a great way of checking whether you're writing well. Hearing words is uh, is a sort of ultimate test, really, because I think they either work as music and rhythm or they don't. And and so, in a way, the the audio book is a is a very natural way of, of of hearing whether something works. Now, the book of phobias and manias has been recorded by the wonderful Stephanie Racine, who also recorded Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace. Did you ask for her again? I was given a choice of different readers, and I chose her to do it uh, because I do think she's wonderful, and um, and she did a brilliant job with Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace. Uh, so yeah, no, I think she's great, and I learnt subsequently that she had had really treasured her reading of that earlier book, and so she was especially pleased to be asked to do this one. So it's it's, it's great to have the the continuity and feel that somebody's familiar with your work. So that was a, that was a very happy thing. Yeah, you gave her quite a workout though with all those phobia romania names. And there was also a bit of Russian, quite a lot of French, and some rather complex German. (laughs) Did she consult you at all, or did you give any pronunciation notes? Well, there's the the luxury of being the person who writes it down rather than reads it out, is that (laughs) as often as not, I've no idea how these words are pronounced. And it's only when I'm digging interviews or something that I meant is that misophobia or misophobia um, so I did get some queries I was able to help with some of them but a lot of the time especially with some of the more obscure words whose pronunciations aren't uh, available even you know searching on the internet for pronunciations it's a bit of like your your guess is as good as mine Well, I'm looking forward to finding out what kind of books you enjoy reading after this final break. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Now it's time to share the books of Kate Summerscale's life. Kate, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I read like mad when I was young and I'd read anything, you know, from Enid Blyton to a bridge Charles Dickens. The one book I thought of was uh, Alison Utley's A Traveller in Time, which is a book I loved as a child. It's about a girl called Penelope who is in a very old house and she finds herself slipping through time and meeting Mary Queen of Scots and becoming involved in in her adventures. And uh, thinking back to it, I realised it's a sort of fantasy that became set in me very young. The idea of escaping into different eras and um, inhabiting historical moments. And it's a great driver when I'm working, when I'm researching and writing. That's really the urge, is time travel. (laughs) That's really, really what I want to do, is slip through, like slipping through fabric or just opening a door and finding Mary Queen of Scots in there instead of what I might expect. And so I I think that probably has exerted a great influence on me. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I actually never reread books. Um, and sometimes I wonder at how I have so many books around me. I keep books as if I might reread them. But whether because of a sort of childish addiction to plot and therefore I don't want to know what happens next. I want it to be a surprise. Perhaps that's one thing that keeps me from rereading. Or the idea that you might spoil your memory, that the original experience is the pure one. I certainly would never dare reread books from my childhood because of the um, fear of of destroying the magic that, that I recall. But I do have books that I sort of, I like the idea of rereading, that I imagine that I would like to wrap myself up in one day. And Charles Dickens' Bleak House would be one of those, um, because it's such a sort of capacious book that's stuffed with comedy, drama, sensation, murder plots 
character and just Dickens' wild imagination everywhere, animating everything. So that feels like a, a treasure trove. I, lo I love that book and I've only read it once, but perhaps that'll be the one I go back to one day. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I recently read a very short book. It's really a long, short story or a novella um, called Foster by Claire Keegan. She's an Irish writer and her, her book, Small Things Like These, was shortlisted for this year's Booker Prize. So I read that and adored it um, and then went on to read Foster. Both are very short, very simply written and absolutely beautiful books. Foster's about a, a girl who's sent off to stay with another family while her mother is in the late stages of pregnancy. And they live in a, a busy, big Irish family and um, so she's palmed off on some other people. And the book is about the secret in that family that she goes to, her feelings, how the experience changes her and her eventual return home. And it's it's really exquisite, and um, I found it like devastating and so so moving. Kate Summerscale, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading and for giving us a greater insight into your books and also our phobias and manias today. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Kate Summerscale, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you want to drop us a line or check out our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Marjorie Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.